We've already read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul instructs us to examine ourselves before we partake. What that examination is to consist of, he had already explained earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's look now at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. Now, dear friends, flee from idolatry, which I've already read to you. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving with which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. So Paul's explaining the symbolism of the one loaf of bread that they broke at the communion. It reminds us that we're one body. The church is not just people sitting over there somewhere, but the people sitting near me are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we together are one body. First Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. We do not want you to be ignorant of the fact that our forefathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. He's reminding it, them of the historical context of the Passover, which became the celebration of communion, as Jesus explained that he was the fulfillment of the promise. All of Israel, when they were in the wilderness under the baking sun, was spared the heat of the day by a cloud and guided at night by a pillar of fire. You may remember the story. And then they ate the same spiritual food. Each morning they would wake up and on the ground around them would be manna, a bread-like substance which they would collect and eat. And at one point in the desert, water was in short supply. They complained to Moses. Paul reminds them of that part of the story. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the, the spiritual rock that accompanied them. That rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. So he warns us that the story about Israel was recorded because the pattern that they fell into is the kind of pattern we can fall into. He continues to say, these things occur as examples to keep us from sinning setting our hearts on evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as they were. 
as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got to indulge in pagan revelry. When they escaped from Egypt, they were happy. The former slaves were now free, so they wanted to have a party. They went to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they said, Make an idol for us that we may worship the God that brought us out of Egypt. Of course, the God who is in heaven has no physical shape. You can't make a representation of him. So Aaron made a calf and covered it with gold. They took the earrings out of their ears and contributed that to make the idol. And the, the calf was plated with gold by Aaron. And examples of that can be seen in museums all over the world. A calf, a golden calf, was a common idol in Egypt at that time. So they reverted to their culture for idolatry. If you're a fan of travel, you may have been to Rome, you may have been to Athens. In both Rome and in Athens, there are huge ancient temples called Pantheon. Pantheon is all, all the gods' house of worship because the Romans and the Greeks had tons of gods. They had gods for everything. I remember when I was a little boy, some of that is carried over into some churches today. We would eat fish on Fridays. I was always the one who got the bone. And I was always afraid of it. Sometimes it would stick in my throat. It's very hard to get a fishbone out of your throat. You cough and hack and swallow and swallow and it doesn't move. So one of the things that's carried over from that in some church traditions is a saint for everything. Just as the Romans and the Greeks had a god for everything. We had a saint for fish bones. And once a year you went to church and the priest would take two candles and he would bless your throat which supposedly was going to keep you from getting a fishbone stuck in your throat. I realize now all that had happened was an ancient god had got transferred into something that was more acceptable to Christians. They, they called the ancient god a saint. So they still had the same practice, a god for everything or a saint for everything. And a lot of people, when I grew up in the same tradition, had little statues on the dash of their car, St. Christopher, who was supposed to protect you from car accidents and injury if you were in one. I don't think the little statue ever protected anybody from anything, but it was idolatry. It was a form of worshiping something other than God. The Greeks and the Romans in Athens built these huge temples called Pantheon. Pan means all. Theon means place of worship. The Pantheon is a place of worship for all the gods. For the Romans, the chief god was Jupiter. In the Greeks, it was Zeus. We have a Pantheon in America. Does anybody know what the name of our pantheon in Western culture is? Our pantheon is scientia, science. If science doesn't say it's true, it's not true. Science has shown that 
Six out of seven. It's got to be true, right? If science has shown it. And who's the chief god in our pantheon? You know, I was an engineer. Numeros, numbers. Those of you that are in many disciplines, many areas of work, know that numbers validate everything in our society. When I did my doctoral work, I focused on character development of seminary students because many of them were recent converts and were very lacking in Christian character. That led me into psychology. As I studied psychology, I discovered that when psychology first started as a discipline, they realized that character was the essential thing to develop in people because they couldn't reduce character to something that they could measure numerically. Within a few years, character was dropped from being the focus of research and articles, and they substituted personality traits. So now when we look for the right spouse, we do these online profiles that try to match us up based on personality and shared hobbies because it's easy to measure that stuff, to quantify it. So our, our chief God becomes numbers, and we bow down and worship numbers all the time. Many of us in workplace have to do that. You know the importance of generating the right numbers on the report. When I first graduated from university, I quickly learned that I was in an evangelistic ministry, that numbers were everything that if I only had the right numbers on my reports, I'd be okay. If I didn't have the right numbers, the person over me would come down and lean on me heavy to get those numbers up. Because what was important was the numbers. What we were worshiping was numbers. They had become, so to speak, an idol. And so Israel in the wilderness bowed down before the golden calf and worshiped it created an idol that it wanted to believe led them out of the wilderness. You may know the story. Moses had been up in the mountain. He had the Ten Commandments and two tablets of stone, which had been written by the finger of God. When he came down, he saw the people involved in drunken revelry, worshiping the golden calf. He took the tablets, and what did he do with them? Threw them down and shattered them. Why? Why did he break the Ten Commandments tablets? If he hadn't, what would have happened when he read them to the people? They, How many ten of the Ten Commandments did they manage to break in the revelry? Sexual immorality? Worshipping a false god, you should have no gods before me? So they, by, vert, by what they had done, if they had received the Ten Commandments, they would have seen... We broke the law, we're guilty, we're condemned, we're in big trouble. God's going to bring judgment upon us. Earlier in First in Corinthians, he also talked about examining our social immorality. Numbers 25, Israel in the wilderness. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. One day, 
23,000 of them died. Sexual immorality got linked into idolatry very easily because their God was a giant vending machine, as is God for many of us. Many of us think of God as a God's who you go to when you want something. And you put the right thing in, just like you put coins or dollar bills in the machine. You press the button, or you have to pray the prayer, you have to serve the church, that's the money you put in, and then God gives you what you want. And that's what they saw, thought of God. The whole point of God was to get what you want. So you make an offering to their pagan God, and he was supposed to give them what they wanted. The sexual immorality entered in because they wanted the crops to be abundant. They wanted fertility of the land. They wanted their flocks and herds to multiply. They wanted fertility of their animal. In many societies today, the number of cows and horses and other animals you have in your flock and herd is the measure of your wealth and your security. So a bridal dowry might often be the beginning of a flock or a herd. So many goats and so many rams, so many lambs, and so forth. Because that's your safety net, your security, your prosperity, so to speak, your 401k. They would worship the pagan god because they thought that's the way to get this fertility we want. And sexual immorality entered in because in the twisted thinking that went with that, they were reminding God what he was supposed to do. You're supposed to bless us. You're supposed to give us fertility. It supposedly was an enactment of what God would do for them. God is not manipulated by such things. God is not a vending machine that we turn to to get what we want, better health or get what we want, a baby, a better job, a promotion, admission into that particular selective school, the different things that we think we can manipulate God into giving us. That was the heart of their idolatry that they sinned for. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, examine yourselves for a lack of faith. Paul said, we should not test the Lord, some of them did, and were killed by snakes. You can read about that in Numbers 21. We should not test the Lord. I think when we pray to God as if he was a vending machine, what we're doing is testing the Lord. We're trying to say to him, if you really want to be my God, if you want me to pray to you and worship you, you got to deliver when I push the button. And I push the button and I'm waiting for the right thing to drop down so I can push the door open and reach in and get what I want. Now deliver God. That's what they did, and that's what happened why the snakes, the serpents came, and thousands died in, as a result of that foolishness. So we need to examine ourselves. Are we doing the same thing? For a lack of persevering faith, you can read Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Continuing to trust in God. Sometimes that's the most difficult thing. 
is to make the decision to trust or to rely upon him. To trust in is to cling to, to rely upon. If you think about it, faith is not something you've got to work up as an act of will. It's a response to the faithfulness of an object. Before a pilot gets in an airplane and takes off with several hundred people on board, he normally walks around the plane, looks at everything, makes sure he doesn't see any foreign objects sticking in the engine, and that the landing gear looks good and solid, the tires are properly inflated. Then he checks that the rudders, rudder rudders and the flaps flap. And he normally start the engines and throttle them up, make sure that they're responding correctly. When he sees that the plane is, is reliable, if the engines won't throttle up when he pulls the throttle back, if the rudder won't turn when he moves the stick, if the flaps won't go up and down when he moves the lever for the adjustment of the flaps, he's not going to fly the plane. He's going to say, this plane's not reliable, it's not trustworthy. I'm not going to trust it. When we see an object is reliable, the proper response is to rely upon it. When we see an object is faithful, the proper response is to trust, to have faith in it. When we see God's actions through the years, Paul is reminding the church of God's faithfulness to Israel, that as they remember those stories, they realize God is faithful. His rudder does rudder, his flaps do flap, his engines do throttle up and throttle back. You can trust him. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. And the proper response to seeing the trustworthiness of God is faith. So some of them had to examine themselves to realize that they had stopped trusting in God. Another thing to examine ourselves for is a complaining spirit. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. You can read of that in Numbers 16. A complaining spirit shows our lack of faith, our lack of desire to turn towards him, to rely upon him, to cling to him. Finally, examine yourselves for all these things, for anything that is limiting your walk with God. Communion Sunday should be, so to speak, like the annual physical. This week I went and saw my doctor to get the results of my annual physical. He went through my blood work and everything and said to my wife, well, it looks like he's going to be around for a few more years. Everything was good. The numbers that are supposed to be low were low. The numbers that are supposed to be high were high. Everything was where it should be. So there was nothing that he wanted to investigate more deeply. Communion Sunday should be like that physical, where we look at our lives 
and we examine to see is anything not where it should be. Is my prayer life not where it should be? Is my faithfulness to my marriage vows not where it should be? Is my dedication to raising my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord not as it should be? Have I allowed idolatry to slip into my life? The idolatry in Exodus 32, the golden calf incident, began when Exodus says, Moses was slow in returning. The people made their own God. Things weren't happening as quickly as they wanted them to. They wanted God to get on their schedule. So they turned to false gods. False gods are often Something as obvious as a golden calf, it can be values, priorities, desires, plans, and so forth. Sometimes the desire to get a promotion becomes a false god, or to get into a selective enrollment university becomes a false god. And it takes self-examination to see that. That's where our spouses are often most helpful to us, even our children. Asking them, have you seen any of this in my life? They often can see with clarity what we cannot see ourselves. It's good to read Exodus 32, the story of the golden calf, Moses getting the Ten Commandments on the mountain, and to reflect on it, because Paul says that these things were written down for our benefit. They're not just pieces of ancient trivia. They are specifics that show us that people follow patterns. As Israel did, so we tend to do. Sometimes we will see, you know, I'm doing the same thing here. I'm, I made a golden calf here because God didn't do what I wanted quick enough. I made a golden calf here because I didn't want to worship the one true God. I wanted something concrete that I was used to, that my culture made me familiar and comfortable with. So I reduced the work of God to numbers in our society would be that's the danger the church constantly faces we yield to society I find it fascinating pastor you've seen this I'm sure denominations announce a new president comes in and they announce we're going to have a big effort for this or for that and it's always in round numbers like 1,000 or 10,000 
one denomination recently, I got their email because I have many friends that serve in that denomination. And God's led them to plant a thousand churches in the next year or two. I wonder why God always works in round numbers like 1,000. I suspect culture had informed the president of the denomination because our culture likes round numbers like 1,000 or 10,000. So he used a number that culture made him comfortable with. And I think if he examined himself, he might see that what he made was a golden calf, something that he had seen before that would look real good. If he could go to his friends in other denominations and say, we planted 10,000 churches. See, my golden calf looks better than your golden calf. Those things, those idols sneak into our life very easily. And it takes very sincere and difficult self-reflection to see them. Communion Sunday should be that time every month when we reflect on our lives and ask, have I allowed idols into my life anywhere? After you read the story of Exodus in Exodus and reflect on it, asking God, speak to me if I'm doing the same thing. If this is an this example has become a parallel in my life, then take time to listen to him and participate in the body and blood of Christ, finding forgiveness and transformation of life. When God's not moving as fast as we want him to, we do well to remember when Israel said that to God. And the result was that some of God's revelation to them, they never received. The Ten Commandment stones were shattered for them. Which is another fascinating story because people are always complaining if the Bible's inspired, why didn't why don't you have the original copy? Why why didn't God write it so that errors of copying and transcription could never have occurred? So we know we had exactly what Moses wrote, exactly what Paul wrote, or John, or Mark, or Luke. Well, God did write it once with his own finger. And it was because people sinned that that writing by God's finger was destroyed. The same would have happened if the four Gospels and all Paul's epistles, if we still had the original documents, they would become idols that we'd worship. They would have led us down the wrong path. just as when some of them died because of the, the snakes, the serpents, God provided relief. Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a staff and all who looked up at it and lived, as we can read about in Numbers 21. Christ becomes deliverance to us from the consequences of our sins. He will save us or rescue us from them.
And so we turn to him on Communion Sunday again. And this afternoon may be a good afternoon to take some pause for a time of reflective prayer, of confession of sin and of appropriation of forgiveness through Christ and of requesting transformation by Christ our sanctifier and the indwelling spirit to rescue us from the serpents that have entered our life because we simply were unwilling to continue in faith upon God. So examine ourselves for lack of faith, for idolatry, for sin anywhere in our life is part of what Communion Sunday is about. Like the annual physical, you want to make sure things are working. As I often say to my doctor when he says, well, this is what we need to do. I say, doctor, will any cure you want to do or any test you want to do is less difficult than what would happen if we don't do it and something is wrong. So if I need to clean up an area of my life, that will be less difficult to you. To some of the Corinthians who did not respond properly, they were ill and some even died, Paul said, as we read. I don't want to get in a situation where God withdraws his sustaining grace from my life because I'm unwilling to deal with that which is pushing its way between me and him. I don't want to be like Israel was in the wilderness. I want to be as Christ would have me to be. So I pray that prayer. Confess sin. Ask for forgiveness. And then yield to the Spirit to transform you. And to Christ to manifest himself through me. That I may be more like Jesus every day and in every way. Well, next month when we have Communion Sunday, I hope you will prepare yourself on Saturday before with a period of self-examination. Use the time here before we participate in the elements to examine yourself. And I encourage those of you who are married, husbands support your wives, wives support your husbands as we deal with the sin in our life. And parents support your children. And children support your parents as they deal with the sin in their life. For we are one body. The body of Christ. Will you bow with me as we close in prayer? Our Father, we are overwhelmed that you would love us so much you sent your Son to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins and that you gave us your indwelling spirit who can transform us and create in us the holiness that is not always there that you created us to manifest. So help each of us to see what you see in our life that's displeasing to you and to be willing to confess it and to accept the forgiveness that Christ has made for us and to yield ourselves to your spirit for transformation and to Christ to manifest himself in and through us 
in new and holy ways for us. We give you thanks that we can have such a celebration. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. This week, most of us heard the tragic news that the ISIS group had murdered people in America. My niece lives in New York City. The first thought my wife and I both had was, is Hannah okay? So we immediately sent a text, were you far away from where this insanity happened? And I thought for a moment about the man after he murdered people by driving over them with a truck, got out of the truck and yelled out, his name for God, Allah, is great. Allahu Akbar. That's not true. He's got the wrong name for God. The name is Yahweh. In most of your translations, you'll see it as capital L-O-R-D. Lord in small caps. The L is large, full-size capital. The O-R-D are slightly smaller size capital letters. If you read the forward to your Bible, you'll see in the Old Testament, that's how they show the word Yahweh. Or in Latin, as some of our hymns have it, Jehovah. How that word is translated so that you'll know you're seeing the name for the God who makes a covenant with people and keeps his covenant. So this poor misguided person thought that God is pleased by driving a truck down a sidewalk and running over innocent people. That God is a monster. Our God is not a monster. Our God sent his son to die in our place. That way we might not have to be the object of condemnation for our sins. Read in Exodus, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Moses has said, let me see your face. God said, no one can see my face and live. So he hid Moses in a cleft or a crack, a crevice in the rock and passed over him. And as the Lord passed by, you'll see the attributes of God are listed. Compassionate, loving, forgiving for a thousand generations. Very different than the God of Islam is the God we worship. Those stories in Exodus are good to read and to think upon. They were written for us, Paul reminded us, as we read today in 1 Corinthians, to point out to us. I think if Muslims would read those stories, they would realize the God they worship is nothing like the Lord God. Nothing like Jesus Christ. We sing a hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. He is our friend. He is a person who loves us with a love incomprehensible. Who became our savior that we might be rescued from the consequences of our own decisions, our own idolatry and lack of faith and so forth. After worship is done, we invite those who are guests to come downstairs. We have a time of fellowship and refreshments. It's a great time to get to know other people. If you're new to the church, I encourage you to get to know the people who will walk up to you and say hello. My wife and I 
believe one of the great blessings that has come to us since my stroke is bringing us to this church. So many people who love God have come alongside of us as our brothers and sisters, part of the body of Christ. Now may I close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for all things Christ. Now this day, speak to our hearts and minds. Fill us with your grace and love that we may truly represent Christ as his body. Amen.